0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: You
2: know, all of this is about looking for suspects. Whether it's 9-11 or voter fraud or whatever, you've got people who had means, opportunity, and motive to implement, to promote, and, and profit from 9-11 voter fraud from policies of, of expanded military in the world. And these are the suspects. I mean, if you're going to do an investigation, you make a list of suspects and then you go find out who had access, who was doing what, where, who could buy thermite quickly and install it. I mean, whatever. You go ask those questions. It's an investigative process.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Peter Phillips. Today's show the Global Dominance Group, and 9-11. Dr. Phillips is Professor of Sociology, Media Research Specialist, and Director of Project Censored at Sonoma State University. Project Censored is a media research group that for 30 years has researched and published the most important stories that the corporate media didn't cover. On June 4, 2006, Dr. Phillips presented his most recent research at the 9-11 Education and Strategy Conference in Chicago. This talk documents how the leadership class in the United States is dominated by a neoconservative group of people with the shared goal of aggressively asserting U.S. military power worldwide. Recent research at Sonoma State University lists 240 global dominance associates who have been the primary promoters and beneficiaries of the so-called War on Terror before and after 9-11. These advocates dominate the U.S. government today and receive a lion's share of corporate media attention. Dr. Peter Phillips.
2: I'm director of Project Censored, and uh, we're a media research group that for 30 years was putting out a list of the most important news stories that the corporate media hasn't covered. So that got us interested in 9-11 unanswered questions right away. Our, first, our book in 2003, um, which came out actually just about a year after 9-11, listed everything that we'd seen at that point that looked like very serious, well-documented, unanswered questions. And um, we took that um, even further, last year in our book, uh, which is the one that's out right now, 2006, this has a full chapter, unanswered questions of 9/11, and it talks about odd money and Building 7 and all of those things, most of which uh, people here today, after a couple of days of this, are pretty familiar with. One thing that became interesting to me early on and fit into the kind of research I do—I I do political research about power elites and have looked at higher class policy councils and groups in the U.S. who kind of are the decision makers, the ones making the decisions in the United States. And I've traced their histories and looked at uh, a long 100-year history of post-industrialization and policy councils going back to the national manufacturers and then the Trilateral Commission, all these different groups. And they're all interesting. They're all elite policy planning groups. But what's happened relative to 9-11 and before is the significant shift in the power base within the policy groups in the United States. And that was very interesting to me because as I was traveling with Barry Zwicker a year ago when his movie broke in the Bay Area, and we went to five cities in a row and I was in a panel with him. Webster, Barry, Ian, a lot of people I was working with were saying they did this. They are the ones that did this. But who they were were, you know, it was always implied Bush or Cheney or you know, and if you took Michael Rupert stuff all the way out. He was saying Cheney and the basement of the White House and the war games and that kind of stuff. But any support for that, the evidence for that was pretty thin. And so I wanted to, we really wanted to put, you know, some parameters on and some definition of who they are. Who are the people in power? Who are the decision makers? So we started um, kind of a network analysis where we take a look at who the beneficiaries are from 9-11, who were the advocates before. We look at the history of the neocons, and we put together a list, which is available here, and it's on our website at projectcensored.org, of 240 key players in what we call the Global Dominance Group. And the Global Dominance Group is somewhat different, because after the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the deterioration of the Soviet Union, this whole fear of communism, which had galvanized the policy elites in this country since World War II, went away r- rather quickly. And there was a real push at that time to decide, well, where do we go from here and what, what have been our strategies? Our strategy has always been detente, mutually assured destruction between the Soviet Union and the U.S., um, statesmanship and, and that. So we see an emergence then where the leadership class in the United States Becomes dominated by a neoconservative group of people who have a shared goal of aggressively asserting US military power worldwide. So, our research identifies the, the key actors in this global dominance group, examines how they are interconnected, how they are supported by the corporate media, and how these key newsmakers use public relations firms to. Put their, put their agendas out, and we review who benefited after 9-11, and we examine how Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld as the, as the most public figures of this group, but how they're interlocked in public-private partnerships with the corporate media, with private foundations, the military contractors, policy elites, government officials, and that collectively, in a very tight group, they support the U.S. military global domination of the world, so this is why we call them global dominance group. Now, Ritz, Alan Bloom, Richard Pearl—they came out of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought, Leo Strauss, and um, you know had this neoconservative philosophy. But they were few in number. But the philosophy is somewhat interesting. I want to give some examples of that. AdBusters magazine defined neoconservatism as the belief that democracy is best defended by an ignorant public pumped up on nationalism and religion. And only a militantly nationalist state can deter human aggression. And such a nationalism requires an external threat, and if one cannot be found, it must be manufactured. So this belief, you know, that the people in the country will go along with and want to defend our nationalism is very present. And John Pilger wrote he had actually interviewed Richard Pearl back during the Reagan administration. And this is his quote. He said, I interviewed Pearl when he was advising Reagan. And he spoke about total war. This was back then. And I mistakenly dismissed him as mad. He, he was writing this about about two years ago. And he said, and recently he used the term in describing America's war on terror. No stages, Pearl said. This is total war. We're fighting a variety of enemies. There are lots of them out there. All this talk about we're going to do Afghanistan, then we'll do Iraq, and it's, it's entirely wrong. You know, we just let our vision of the world go forth. We embrace it entirely. We don't try to piece together clever diplomacy. We just wage total war. Our children will sing great songs about us in the future. So that's Pearl. I mean. 10 years ago, during the Reagan administration. So clearly within that, and and when Bush was elected to presidency, then Cheney became Secretary of Defense, Bush I. So the expansion, the neoconservatives were starting to be placed in positions of power within the government, within Bush I's administration. And by 92, Cheney, using Louis Livy and Paul Wolfowitz and other writers, had produced what was called the Defense Planning Guidance Document. This was an internal memorandum circulated with, with the Pentagon and in high government officials that advocated the U.S. military dominance of, of, of the globe in a new world order. That's when those, that terminology first started. Now, if you remember Bush talking about a new world order back during Gulf War I, I mean, that was, that was kind of the origin of it, this new world order, U.S. to dominate the world. But what was interesting, you know, and it called for words we hear today, unilateral action, forward presence of troops worldwide. That was, you know, and the U.S. was to dominate friends and foes alike so that we'd be stronger, literally, militarily, than anybody else in the world. Even if there are friends, you know, you don't know that, you know, maybe the French next year won't go along with what we want. I mean, so anybody, we needed to be stronger so that we could, could threaten literally anybody in the world. Well, the defense policy guidance document was leaked to the press, and, you know, and people were kind of in shock about it. The, the New York Times wrote on March 11th, 92, that senior White House and, and State Department officials have harshly criticized a draft Pentagon policy statement that asserts America's mission in the post-war era to prevent any collective friendly or unfriendly nations from competing with the United States for superpower status. So the New York Times is saying, hey, this isn't a good idea. Um, Bush kind of backs off on that as a strategy, and then, of course, Clinton, who was never supposed to get elected, got elected. And so these guys are basically out of government. There were some neocons, Woolsey and others, within the Clinton administration, but they, there wasn't, wasn't a predominant thing. So Clinton kind of stays away from promoting global dominance as an ideological justification for continued high defense budgets. In the early 90s, there was this talk of uh, Cold War dividend, you know, that we were going to have money for schools and for the economy, and that didn't last very long. But the defense spending went down a little bit, it dipped a little bit. And Cheney had actually did that, it was symbolic, but we see kind of a maintenance. But Clinton's strategy for helping the defense contractors at that time was to actively pursue the expansion of U.S. weapon sales worldwide. So we went from 16% of the the international weapons sales in 1988 to 63% in 97. Remember Ron Brown before they got his airplane and I mean, he was going around promoting arms sales for the defense contractors all over the world. So the neoconservatives, you know, they were still very active during the Clinton administration, but most of them ended up in various conservative think tanks or working for Department of Defense contractors. So they moved into um, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, the Hoover Institute, GENSO, Jewish Institute for National Security, uh, Center for Security Policy, and others. And so they're employed there. They're working, writing papers, and and doing advocacy for the continued military New World Order advocates. And then, you know, AEI and some other core foundations, American Enterprise Institute, funded the Project for New American Century to kind of galvanize some of this energy in June of ninety-seven. So their founding statements, principled statements, kind of reads like a kind of a neocon world philosophy. We need to increase defense spending. That's kind of core idea number one. Uh, To carry out our global responsibilities. We need to strengthen our ties with allies and to challenge regimes hostile to us. We need to promote the cause of political and economic freedom abroad. And we need to accept responsibility for America's unique role in preserving and extending the international order friendly to our security, prosperity, and principles. So this is, you know, protect American corporations anywhere in the world, essentially, and it was kind of a, this declaration. So when PNAC is founded, there was 25 people who signed that original statement of, of what they were about. Elliot Abrams, Gary Bauer, um, Jeb Bush, Cheney, Elliot Cohen, Calizad, Libby, Dan Quayle, Wolfer Ritz Rumsfeld, some of the names we know publicly now, but you know there twenty five people, twelve of them went right into positions with with w with, with Bush the second, and uh, so they, they were lining up, they were ready, and it took them three years to put out the Defense Strategies, Resource for New Century, that's a document that is often referenced as PNAC's document, the Strategy for New America Defense. That came out in September of 2000, but they put a number of other policy statements out in that time period and were very active. What's interesting is they're interconnected with, you know, a dozen key policy groups in the country. So this was a new group formed, but it was coming together with energy from a variety of sources. So it wasn't just these 25 guys getting together and say it's time to, time to do this. So the defense policy guidance document was, was actually written by Libby and Wolferitz in 92. It looks very much like what came out of the PNAC in 2000. I mean, some of the language is the same. They use some of the same kinds of adjectives and verbs. And um, the PNAC one, was as Steve Carbone was in on that and a number of others who went on to have high positions in the current administration. So that rebuilding American defenses called for homeland protection. We start to get that use of the word homeland, homeland security, homeland protection. The ability to wage simultaneous wars anywhere in the world, to have a global policing role. In other words, we're going to be the police force for the world. Um, To be able to control space, Weapons in space, the weaponization of space, and to be able to make those kinds of, literally, I mean, they would love to be able to melt Gaddafi, as he was giving a speech somewhere, um, with a satellite beam. you know. And they still have these visions of that kind of Star Wars weapon control, better than anybody else has got. You know, we see the drones and we see that kind of stuff, and, and that's kind of the beginning. But they have this technology dream. And they also want to control cyberspace. And they they just said that right away. I mean, they they want to be able to control the information flow in the internet and that around the world. And then they said that the 90s was a decade of neglect, and the US must increase its military power to preserve a Pax Americana. In other words, we're going to impose peace on the world, and we're going to do that militarily. So we've got 700 bases with forward deployment of troops worldwide. And they identified very specifically Iran, Iraq, North Korea, and particularly China. They spent a good bit of time talking about China, containment of China. China is a major threat, and making sure that we will always have military dominance and being able to control China. So, and they said that, you know, this is going to be a problem because the American people aren't really tuned into, you know, having an empire and global military domination and we don't even talk about it like that. They didn't want to talk about it like that, but you know, they said that that's not going to happen and then of course the famous words unless there's a new Pearl Harbor. So they're laying that right out and of course 911 gave us that catastrophe to which they were able to maximize this philosophy and continue military expansion and growth. You're listening
0: to sociology professor and director of Project Censored, Dr. Peter Phillips today's show, the Global Dominance Group and 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: So we looked at who are the beneficiaries from this process. You can identify who the people are advocating for global dominance. You look at who the beneficiaries are, and then you start to put the names of the people that run those boards of directors together in a group and, and as a list. They all know each other. I mean, they go to different meetings and they talk. I mean, these people, if you're on the board of directors of a major defense contractor, you know all the players. And there's not that many. I mean, our list covers about 240 people. And we show the interlocks between the various groups and who they are. So we looked at the key advocacy groups, PNAC being one, but also the Hoover Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, the Hudson Institute, the National Security Council, Heritage Foundation, the Defense Policy Board, the Committee on the Present Danger, the second one in terms of the one about Iraq the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, the Manhattan Institute, the Committee on the Liberation of Iraq. Um, That was during Clinton's administration with Bruce Jackson, and they put together this committee advocating the invasion of Iraq back then. The Center for Security Policy, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the National Institute for Public Policy, and the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, AIPAC. So those groups, those 15 groups, are kind of the core philosophical supporters for the PNAC, and money, too, that went in. And they, and you see, and you look at individuals who are giving speeches to these groups or, or people coming out of them doing policy position statements and that. And these groups, their core elements are, are closely interlinked with the top defense contractors in the country. So here's a, here's a quote from Condoleezza Rice, and she's speaking at the Hoover Institute in, in 2000. And actually, she's saying, you know, as the world's leading superpower, the United States has special responsibilities. I like to think about this as a great train that's moving down the track. And the metaphors that get used here are interesting. There's markets and competition for private capital. And Rice is saying, clearly, the United States is kind of in the conductor's seat. And with this position of leadership, we have this responsibility to keep the peace. So, you know, it's kind of quaint, but it's like, okay, we've got to have a military that's going to rule the world. I mean, that's essentially essentially what she's saying. Now, this gets manifested more overtly. We look at Dick Cheney's speech to the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, AIPAC, just in March. On March 7th, he gave the keynote speech to the AIPAC meetings. And this is kind of a telling example of the neoconservative global dominance thought. In the current administration, the kind of his, this is his exact words Israel and the US and all civilized nations will win the war on terror. And to prevail in this fight, we must understand the nature of the enemy. As America experienced on September 11, 2001, the terrorist enemy is brutal and heartless, the enemy wears no uniforms has no regard for the rules of warfare. Now, this is Cheney. It's unconstrained by any standard of decency or morality. And the terrorists... Now, this is, this is the part that's incredibly interesting. The terrorists want to end all American and Western influence in the Middle East. Their goal in that region is to seize control of a country... So they have a base from which to launch their attacks and wage war against governments that do not meet their demands. Ultimately, to establish a totalitarian empire that runs from southern Spain, across North Africa, through the Middle East, through India and Pakistan, all the way to Indonesia. This is what the terrorists want to do. And you get the ironic... It's a little ironic. And... uh, and so, you know, and they're trying to build this. So Cheney, you know, he's, he's claiming that there's all these evil terrorists everywhere. They're plotting to, for the ruin of, of civilized nations. And that we've got to stop them militarily by controlling all the regions that they're threatening. So this forward deployment, global domination, is clearly written in there. It's, it's designed, you know, we've created this terrorist enemy. And to prevail over totalitarian terrorists, you know, we have to have... U.S. domination of the world. Now, when we look back at this and the early neocons and, and that, you know, for the last 30 years, there's been really only about 14 foundations that have funded, have been the main funders uh, for these groups, for the Heritage, for the, well, Hoover's been around for a long time, but AEI, in the past 30 years, 177 million has gone to fund the policy directives of the global dominus group people. 96% of that money came from 10 families controlling 14 foundations. So we're talking about Scafee, we're talking about Bradley, Orlean, and a dozen others which we list in our paper and that. So it's a narrow group of funders with some big bucks, putting in millions of dollars to, um, to key groups. And, and so we see greater evidence of this kind of conversation. Now, we're here in Chicago. As we're speaking, it is 9, 10 in the morning in California. The Bohemians are having breakfast. And they're having breakfast out at the Bohemian Grove in um, Monte Rio on the Russian River in Sonoma County. And there's probably about 2,000 to 3,000 of them in there right now. And um, they will have a speech today at 1 o'clock California time, 3 o'clock our time which will be some major policy, statement, speech given by some significant person. And so they're there thinking about these issues. Probably will have something to do with Iran or national security, or right now we're saber-rattling about Iran quite a bit. Well, I attended the Grove in June of of 1994, uh, June 4th. So it was this day. That many years ago, 12 years ago, I guess, that I heard this speech. And it was given, and this was a lakeside chat, and I took copious notes. You can't record anything there, but I took copious notes. I was doing my dissertation on them. So I actually got in and got to listen and hear the kinds of conversations that policy elites have. And, and it was very interesting. But they had a speaker there, and it, was, it was, was representative to me of the neoconservative agenda that was kind of going on and being... Advocated for at that time that's manifested itself, you know, 10, 12 years later. Uh, he was a University of California political science professor. His topic title was Violent Weakness. And he said that there's increasing violence in society that's weakened our social institutions. There's this thing there's 2,000, 3,000 guys sitting in front of this lake. There's no women allowed. And they're 99% white. And they're mostly middle aged or older, and there's some one out of three is somebody really important in the country. I mean, they're CEOs of major corporations, and now, I mean, Bush is a member, and you know, Bush Senior is a member. They haven't let George in yet, George W., but they will probably. And so, you know, these are some really important people. So the speaker's saying that there's our social institutions are being weakened, and uh, this is caused by bisexualism, entertainment, politics, multiculturalism. Afrocentrism and a loss of family values and boundaries. And he says, to avert further deterioration, we need to recognize that elites, based on merit and skill, are important to society. And any elite that fails to define itself will fail to survive. We need boundaries and values set very clear. We need American-centered foreign policy. A president who understands foreign policy. It was Clinton bashing. There was a lot of Clinton jokes there then. He went on to conclude that we cannot, and this is a quote, we cannot allow the unqualified masses to carry out policy, and elites must set values that can be translated into standards of authority. So that's that philosophy. And then that gets you know portrayed, and it was a standing ovation. and 3,000 guys stood up and were cheering and clapping. And so, you know, this, this is a <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so, and at the time, I, I, I don't think I had, had appreciated the degree to which this global dominance agenda was kind of emerging within the higher policy circles in the United States. So our next question in, in terms of the research, okay, so, so who benefits from this? Who, who are the people that are benefiting? And how does that manifest in terms of profit margins and that kind of thing. I want to mention one thing. We put together this list of people, and we identified all their, I had a couple of students, we worked all last summer, and a lot of this data will be a David Ray Griffin's book that will come out in September, Post-American Empire, Post-9-11 American Empire, which will be his new book. And we had a variation of this that was published on our website at projectcensor.org, so the, the data, if you didn't get one of the handout sheets, you can just download it from there. So it puts together things like William Barr. He's on the Carlyle Group board. And, um, you know, who else he's connected with? He's on the Heritage Foundation. He's in the Hoover Foundation. He's a, he was a PNAC person, PNAC. He's on the Council of Foreign Relations. He's an NSA person. And uh, he was a former congressional assistant to Reagan. So you get these people in these high-level positions. It's kind of like a high school yearbook, and they're all in these different groups, you know, and you can go through it, you can see, well, this person's only in two of them, and this person's in eight of them, but they still all know each other. So, you know, so that's typical, and I don't know how many of you ever heard of William Barr, but, I mean, he's one of the people that are making these policy decisions, and I just picked him for random because he was kind of in the middle group. Some people are in everything, literally. I mean, you look at Cheney, and you look at, well, Lynn Cheney, of course, is on the um, Lockheed Martin Board of Directors, and then she's very active in the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. So who profits from this, this global dominance policy? So we looked at that question and we looked at the top defense contractors. I had my political sociology course. Uh, each student took one of the defense contractors and did a full who's on their board and how much what's their profit margin. They did these nice charts. It was really fun. And we took some of that data from that and then we refined it a bit. So Lockheed Martin has probably been one of the big beneficiaries from post 9-11 expansion. Their sales rose by 30% from 2001 to 2004. And uh, their stock value went up 300%. A substantial increase. Uh, Northrop Grumman, same thing. Mass big stock increase. DOD contracts in 2001, 3.2 billion. Uh, in 2004, 11.1 billion. So quadrupling. Now, Halliburton, where Cheney you know, was former CEO, has seen phenomenal growth. Halliburton had $400 million in government contracts in 2001. Two years later, they had $4.3 billion. So, And it's cumulative. I mean, you know, they just got the, the contracts to build, to build more detention centers in the United States. So, their Homeland Security and, you know, huge amounts of money. And so their stock, you know, Cheney, he had options on 400,000 shares of Halliburton stock which at one point was really only worth less than a buck a share. After 9-11, it's now worth about $8 million. So he had this several million dollar increase in uh, value of, of just the stock he had, and he still gets a couple hundred thousand a year as a retirement benefit from, from Halliburton. The Carlisle Group, which we know George Sr. was in and a number of others have been consultants and, and involved with that for a long time worldwide, You know, they have $30 billion in assets. They're kind of a money management firm. And a very large number of people in the global dominance group are part of them. Carlucci, Bush, Baker, Kennard, Richard Darman. They purchased United Defense in 97. Then after 2001, they sold it for a billion-dollar profit. So that worked real well for them. So profits for defense contractors are so good that the New York Times in May of 2005 said they got too much money. They're sitting on like $30 billion. What are they going to do with it? You know, they they really said this is a problem. Even Boeing at that time had $6.5 billion of cash. So huge amounts of cash have flown into these contractors and top corporations. So we took the top seven defense contractors that had more than a third of their income from defense contracts, so it's, it's a vital piece of their business to be aware of what the policies are in terms of the U.S. We add in Halliburton and Carlisle because of their political connections. So we're not putting, I mean, take someone like GE, their defense contracts are really only about 5% of their business. I mean, they're just a huge conglomerate, and they own NBC, and I mean, they're, they're huge, but it's not as vital to their business overall, the defense contracts. If you look at Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, their contracts in the government are vital to the success and the continuing success of those corporations, which is is the reason why Lockheed Martin gave to two-thirds of the people in Congress. I mean, two-thirds of the people in Congress received donations from Lockheed Martin in the the last congressional election in 2004. So they're deeply involved. And very interested in the political process. So we list the board of directors of those corporations and the policy council groups and the people that have been advocating for this. And that, that's kind of how we put that network together.
0: You're listening to sociology professor and director of project censored Dr. Peter Phillips. Today's show, the Global Dominance Group, and 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Now, part of that network also includes direct connections with the corporate media in the U.S. A network analysis of the boards of directors, of the top 10 media organizations, shows that there's really only 118 people, like darn you fit in this room, that run the corporate media in the U.S. MSNBC, ABC, you know, the, if you look at their board of directors, we've got 118 individuals. They, in turn, sit on the corporate boards of 288 national and international corporations. So there's this direct interconnect between the media, and the big corporations um, throughout the United States. So they are, when we say media today, is, it's corporate media. I mean, you, you literally mean that. That's, that's, they're interconnected with the biggest corporations in the U.S. But they're also, and this is relatively new, very much interconnected with his global dominance group. So William Kennard from the Carlisle Group sits on the New York Times board. He was also former FCC director. Douglas Warner III, who's on Bechtel's board, is also sits on GE and NBC's board. Uh, John Bryson from Boeing is on Disney's board, ABC. Alwyn Lewis from Halliburton is on ABC's board as well. And Douglas McCorkendale from Lockheed Martin sits on the Gannett board. So you got half of the top ten with somebody directly from a big defense contractor sitting on the board of director of the of big media groups in the country. So this media interlock effectively represents corporate America's interests and The media has responded to this. So we actually measured the numbers of sites by two of the key um, uh, global dominance advocacy groups, American Enterprise Institute. The New York Times had 55 quotes in 2000 from AEI. And then after 9-11, in 2005, they had 99 quotes. So that was like an 80% increase. And um, the Washington Post, same thing. 87 quotes from AEI. In 2005, 157. So it's like every other day, AEI gets in the Washington Post is quoted on some issue that's going on. Um, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, New York Times, cited them 25 times in 2000, 61 times in, in uh, 2005. Washington Post, um, 54 times in 2000, 81 times in in 2005. So these global advocacy organizations are getting more sites, more coverage, and they're represented more in the corporate media in terms of their points of view. So that was interesting. I mean, that was certainly something new relative to that. And, you know, when we took a look specifically at at Iran and going ahead with a war against Iran, you know, this whole idea that, you know, Iran's going to get the bomb and that there will be a... I mean, this was Bolton's quote. Iran is like 9-11 with a nuclear option. And um, Rice called Iran the number one terrorist state in the world. This all happened in the same week. Rumsfeld, Bush, uh, all of them. You know, that, that, that Iran is so dangerous. And what we found also was that in terms of nexus, lexus, and newspaper coverage, in 2000, Iran was mentioned 250 times in the major papers in the U.S. This year it's been 890 times. Negative, I mean, the, Iran is a danger. So we've seen a significant increase since 9 11 in terms of coverage of identifying Iran. And the PNAC was saying Iran's the bad guys, you know, 10 years ago. So um, they're continuing with that agenda. But they have help. And their help is public relation firms. And this is remarkable to, to us because I didn't really know this until about a year and a half ago. Public relations industry, since 9 has seen phenomenal growth. And massive mergers, massive consolidation. So there's three large publicly traded mega corporations now: Omnicom, WPP, and Interpublic Trust. These firms employ 163,000 people over 170 countries, and they are a network of they control a massive amount of worth. They're interconnected with the most powerful institutions in the United States, corporate and government, and uh, they have direct connections within the global dominance group, the multinational corporations, and the policy making groups. So, like, WPP is a UK-based conglomerate, and they make up Young and Rubicon, Burston Marcellers, uh, Ogley and Mather Worldwide, Helen Knowlton. Remember, remember the incubator babies in the first Gulf War? Well, that was a Helen Knowlton story. And with a number of other PR, advertising, and crisis managers firms all over the world. So this control of media, control of the ideas that, that are being presented are going through these massive firms. And there's, there's, there's a number of independents, but they're clearly, you know, keely interlocked. WPP Group, they have four of their members on the Council of Foreign Relations. Omnicom has a position on Time Warner. And uh, Omnicom has somebody, a lifetime member of the PBS board. So they're closely interlocked. And this is management of, of information and news. And then there's a, a number of notable, and some like the Lincoln Group, which we've heard about, but you don't hear a lot about the Rendon Group, uh, unless you follow war news. Well, they don't, like, say that they're making the war news, but they do. Rendon Group is the company that has worked since the 80s managing the images of Americans' imperial wars. So they handled, they worked for Bush. They, I mean, they handled, they handled Serbia. They handled, they, they were, the first big one was the invasion of Panama. And so they've shaped the international support for the first Gulf War. They actually created the Iraqi National Congress and handpicked Ahmad Shalabi to be the head of that. I mean, that was a, they got CIA money to do that. So the Rendon Group is, you know, one that, that manipulates, manipulates the news. So they're the ones that brought us the pulling down of the statue. I mean, they took the Iraqi National Congress guys, brought them into the, to the, to that square, right in front of the Palestine Hotel where the media all was after they'd shot a few of them, and get the tank to pull down the statue, and that becomes a symbolism, and there's people cheering and stuff which were from the Iraqi Congress that were brought in. It wasn't local people. And that become this, this image of how the war was going and we were winning and, and how happy the Iraqi people were that we were there and all of this. And that was the Rendon Group doing that. They also did the Jessica Lynch story. So, you know, Jessica Lynch, the heroic rescue, they've got the camera crews following the special forces in the rescue or in the hospital. And that was timed. I mean, that was the day that the tanks were rolling into Baghdad. That's the day we shot the artillery shells in the Palestine Hotel. That's the day we bombed Al Jazeera. And what's on the front page all over the country? Jessica Lynch. That was deliberate. That was the Rendon Group. That was their policies of... Deception and, and you know having stories that lock us out. So the the levels of this, the PR firms, the Lincoln Group. Now we know it was had a hundred million dollar contract. They were paying writers in Iraq to write stories favorable to the military. That came out. They were new. I mean, they were formed less than three years ago. And part of their their part of the group was this Vincent Belago, who was a pollster for Reagan and, and Bush administrations. A PNAC member, Devon Cross, Douglas Dirth, who was a former Joint Military Intelligence Training Center. So these global dominance people, are, you know, they, they'll form a PR company, get a $100 million contract, make money off of this stuff. And uh, they're the ones helping create the lies and the, the stories that are the propaganda. And then we, we can get a sense of the money involved here. I mean, the Clinton administration in 2000 spent $38 million on 64 contracts with public relations firms. You go, oh, wow, that's a lot. You know, I mean, that's you're creating the news and stuff. Bush, and this is from the GOA report, in 30 months from 2003, three, four, and half of 2005, spent $1.5 billion on public relation firms and media. So you see the massive increase, and that's part of what's feeding this, this consolidation of PR firms in the world, and uh, creating the news, literally, that we're to cover or, or not cover.
0: You're listening to sociology professor and director of Project Censored, Dr. Peter Phillips. Today's show, the Global Dominance Group and 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: So, another piece of this, which I think is very important, is, you know, in order to stay in power, they, they had to win the 2004 election. And um, it was pretty close. And the polls were, you know, had them neck and neck. And, of course, the media went along. There were no major issues. I mean, Kerry wanted to put more troops in Iraq, and there was a difference in terms of Social Security. This was maybe why 80 million people didn't bother to vote. Maybe Social Security, maybe abortion were issues that bothered people. But for the most part, there weren't key differences. But they were still pretty worried. Kerry was plan B. Kerry was plan B. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Clinton was plan B, too. Um, so now we all know that, that Gore won Florida in 2000. I mean Carter actually came out last fall and admitted that. And they finished that 8-month study in the fall of 2001 where they reviewed 175,000 Florida ballots not counted in the 2000 election and analysis by the National Opinion Research Center confirmed Gore actually won. Well that news came out after 9/11 about a week later. So of course nobody heard it. And so anyway, the 2004 election was just as fraudulent. The official vote count showed that Bush won by 3 million votes. And the exit polls showed Kerry winning by 5 million votes. And most people say, well, exit polls, you know, surveys, how accurate is that? There's always errors and stuff like that. But in this case, the Edison Media Research and Matoski International were the two firms hired to to do the polling. It was 13,000 people were polled, which, you know, your normal Gallup poll is about anywhere from 1,200 to 2,000. And that gets you within a 3% plus or minus accuracy rate of the opinions on an issue for the entire population. And unless you ask a question that people don't understand or, you know, you have a leading question, you want to bring it one way or the other, then the math is right. I mean, you can, but it's pretty difficult to go wrong when somebody's walking out of a poll and saying, who did you vote for president for five minutes ago? I mean, most people get that right. And... and So you got 13,000, so that takes you up to the 99.5% accuracy level in the country if you randomly select people in the polls. So this 8 million vote, the chances of statistically the polls being wrong in the country is about 100,000 to 1. That's just the math. But it's interesting because in California and 37 other states, the exit polls match the voter results. They came out the same. The exit polls in California matched what the Secretary of State said the election was. Oh, good. Thirteen states, thirteen states were major differences, some of which carry one, but it would have won by much larger margins. You know, Bush needed that, you know, public mandate for continuing the global dominance agenda, essentially. So these thirteen states, I have a list of them here, Colorado, Florida, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nevada, New Mexico, and Ohio. We often just talk about Ohio. That's where the exit polls didn't match the results. And that's where the 8 million votes are concentrated. And a statistical possibility of that only happening in those states gets you up into the millions to one. Well, 2004 was fraudulent. I mean, there's just no question about it. And Carter and Baker, they had their commission a year ago. They did a report said, you know, yeah, there were problems, the lines were too long, you know, in some states, and, uh, you know, you had to wait 12 hours if you lived in a black neighborhood in Ohio to get to vote and that kind of thing, and it was raining, and, and Florida had... Election, pro- you know, registration problems, again, stuff so like that. But that was a fair election, and the differences didn't make that much matter. The Democrats don't want to bring this out either. They don't want a populist revolt demanding freedom of information, demanding electoral reform, demanding getting the corporations out of the out of the political process. They don't want that, so they're not going to bring forward information. I mean, why this hasn't come forward as a major story? It beats me. But I mean, it was our, one of our top five stories last year. Um, books have come out about it. Uh, Dennis Liu from Cal Poly Pomona wrote a whole chapter in our book about it. all this is documented. Um uh, have got new books coming out of it. Um, Seven Stories Press is bringing a book out on election fraud. It's quite odd. Everybody knows. But it's just not in the front pages of everybody's paper, and it's easy to dismiss as, oh, well, that's just, you know, flaws in, in the review process or something. Election system software. Diebold and Sequoia. the three main providers of the voting... We all know about Diebold, but there's other companies that provide hardware, you know, the voting machines. And um, all three have strong ties to the Bush administration, but also their largest investors are Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Electronic Data Systems, and Accentua. Now, Accentua is the new name for Arthur Anderson. And so we've got... Military contractors that are investors in the hardware of the voting machine process in the country, which is a proprietary-owned machines, at least what's in them, and the software systems, which is the only country in the world that has that happen. And Diebold had hired SAIC, Scientific Applications International, out of San Diego. Now, SAIC is known kind of as a retirement home for CIA people. Um, It's an international consulting firm. And um, SAIC, on their board of directors, is Army General Wayne Downing, former National Security Council, um, Bobby Ray Enman, former director of the CIA, Admiral William Owens, former vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and and Robert Gates, another director. I got two CIA directors on their board of directors. So SAIC was the company that did the software security systems in the Diebold machines that we used for our election in 2004. Golly. <laughs> you know, <and> so... <laughs> You know, all of this is about looking for suspects. Whether it's 9-11 or voter fraud or whatever, you've got people who had means, opportunity, and motive to implement, to promote, and and profit from 9-11, voter fraud, from policies of of expanded military in the world. And these are the suspects. I mean, if you're going to do an investigation, you make a list of suspects, and then you go find out who had access, who was doing what, where... Who could buy thermite quickly and install it? I mean, whatever. You go ask those questions. It's an investigative process. So, you know, David Griffin has published his findings now on the 9-11 Commission Report. We've got the Building 7 evidence. So, you know, we're members of the GDG, the Global Dominance Group, involved in 9-11. Well, they certainly advocated for it. And then we certainly know that all the warnings that happened, that, they knew, that they, they knew in advance that something was pending. So many of them had been warned not to fly, you know, in August of 2001. And I guess Hillary Clinton just admitted to that, too, that they'd been warned not to fly. So they had every opportunity to know in advance. They had abundance of evidence that they had foreknowledge, and, and, that, and we have abundance of evidence that they really wanted something like that to happen. So did, you know, how did, were they, and was there a facilitation? Well, we don't have the individuals without more, without more investigation in terms of who was doing, but, but we got a little peek when we, we heard about how Army intelligence specialists working in cooperation with Orion Scientific Systems in 99 and 2000 in a program called Able Danger were monitoring all known Al-Qaeda affiliates of the United States and all their communications. They had acquired the equivalent of a quarter of the Library of Congress of data. I mean, a massive amount of data. I mean, they, they have identified Mohammed Atta and four other of the alleged terrorists at the core of a Brooklyn cell. But it wasn't just that they'd identified them. They'd identified everybody in the U.S. who had talked to them, everybody around the world and their connections, and, and all of this data was, was available. They tried three times in 2000 to present that data to the FBI and were turned down each time. They finally did take it to the White House and left a chart. They said, these guys are dangerous. Here's their connections. You ought to do something. The charts disappeared. And then they were ordered, right at the end of 2000, they were ordered to destroy all the data. Major Kleinschmidt, who was the only person in the military side of that that's been able to testify because he's no longer in the military, Pentagon wouldn't let anybody currently in the military testify. They had hearings in September, and they had hearings in February. And I've read, Klein, Schmidt now works for uh, Lockheed Martin doing data mining in, in Iraq. And, um, you know, part of that revolving door of, you know, military contractors, you know, back and forth. But he testified, you know, he said, we had this data, we had charts, we tried to present it, we were told to destroy it all and to stand down. So he's got that testimony. There's testimony from Orion that, and that. So what the government had at that point, and it had been acquired, half of it from public sources, was pretty solid connections between the key players that had been identified in 9-11 and other people in the country yet to be, uh, yet to be identified. So we had as a high-level military-public-private partnership involved a major defense contractor, uncovered U.S. citizens' links to the terrorists, and was officially told to destroy all the evidence. So that's kind of the latest on Able Danger. We don't know where they, they go into closed hearings a lot of times, and we don't get to find out all about it, but that's certainly part of it. You know, we now know from Zogby poll, you know, that uh, half the people in the country don't believe 9-11 was, was truthful. And actually, half the people in public affairs research in October and a Zogby poll in November were close to half the people in the country demanding impeachment. Now, I wrote a piece that was published a couple of months ago in Common Dreams and, and was entitled, if there's a national movement to impeach the president and the corporate media doesn't cover it, is there really a national movement to impeach the president? <laughs> you know, and, and that's kind of true. I mean, we used Nexus Lexus. We looked at letters to the editor in all the major papers in the country. And from October to March, there were 1,000 letters to the editor demanding impeachment of Bush and, and Cheney in the major newspapers in the country. Now, if you think about, it, one out of a thousand people might write a letter to the editor. So you you start to think about a thousand letters to the editors in that time period from people all over, just, you know, random people in the country saying that we've got to stop this. It's a major movement. It's a major involvement. And we know that um, city councils, boards of supervisors, the, the Democratic Central Committees all over this, the country are taking this position. It's time to get these guys out. And it's not just about the election. And the Democrats in Congress saying, oh, no, we can't have, we can't have an impeachment, uh, you know, that's it's not good for the country. Yeah, no, no, they don't want an impeachment of a president. There's never been one. And it undermines the credibility of the government the way it stands. But, um, you know, across the country, Sonoma County Democratic Central Committee, the city of Sebastopol two weeks ago, Townships in Vermont, five townships, New Mexico State Democratic Party, the National Green Party, have all been writing and calling for impeachment just in the last six months. And so there's this big call of which most of us don't know about. You know, see a little impeachment signs here and there, and are perhaps a little afraid to, to even think about it, because if it doesn't happen, I and mean, if it's not in the corporate media, it's not happening. So unless you're on the Internet and you really can do this research... And find out the kind, the degree to which people agree with us. People in this room, I, I, there probably isn't a core ideological or a core political party at this conference. We're spread all over the map, and we know these issues. I grew up in a Republican farm family in the Central Valley of California, and those aren't the Republicans in power today. Those values are not the kinds of things I grew up with. Absolutely. You know, and and so that's. So there's lots of good reasons not preventing 9-11 is certainly one good reason for impeachment. There's plenty of others. Stealing in the White House, lying to the American public about misleading Congress on Iraq, direct torture of people worldwide, ordering free fire zones in Fallujah and other cities, killing thousands of civilians, usurping the American people's right to know through use of propaganda machines, through PR firms, building imperial presidency by issuing signing statements, They knew well in advance New Orleans was in danger and did absolutely nothing about it. The deaths there, denial of global warming, disregarding peak oil, placing oil industry profits over over issues of that concern, violating the constitution of separation of church and state, failing to prevent 9-11, promoting global dominance of the world by the United States military, and overthrowing the elected president. Another regime change was Aristide in Haiti. So you've got 12 good reasons to impeach the president. You only need one. And along with 9 11, we need to ask these Congress people hey, it's time to get rid of these guys and to have a popular movement that says no to this kind of abuse and this kind of control. There's something
1: happening Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over
0: there. You've been listening to sociology professor, media research specialist, and director of Project Censored, Dr. Peter Phillips. Today's show has been the Global Dominance Group and 9-11. This presentation was given on June 4, 2006 at the 9-11 Education and Strategy Conference in Chicago. Peter Phillips's most recent paper, researched and written in collaboration with Bridget Thornton and Celeste Volger, the Global Dominance Group, 9-11 Pre-Warnings and Election Irregularities in Context, is an attempt to identify the general parameters of those who are the key actors supporting a global dominance agenda, and how collectively this group has benefited from the events of September 11th, 2001, and irregularities in the 2004 presidential election. This paper is available at the Project Censored website, www.projectcensored.org. That's www.projectcensored.org. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.
1: a sniper, trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look what inside yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me